Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll spend a lot of our time this morning as we consider our work in marriage. Last week, our role. This week, our work. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Well, Father, we do ask that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We pray that you would remove from us all the distractions and worries of this life, all the sins that so easily entangle us in thought and in word and in deed, that you would help us to remember the cross and help us to remember the salvation that we have received through your son, the forgiveness of our sins through his shed blood, the new life that is imparted to us by your spirit. And so we ask that you would minister to us through your word and equip us as husbands and wives or future husbands and wives, that we would love as you have loved us and bear patiently as you have borne patiently with us and forgive as you've forgiven us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When we think about our work in marriage, as we've talked about, I think for a number of weeks, we can easily consider just the division of responsibilities in a home, just all the little tasks. I mean, there are dishes to be done, there are floors to be swept and vacuumed, there are diapers to be changed and meals to be made and yards to mow and errands to run and finances and budgets to to balance and just all the many little tasks and things that are done in the life of a family, in a marriage, in a home. And so I think we could spend all day just talking about all those little responsibilities both in the home and outside the home. But I want us to, again, approach that issue differently because I don't find that that's really where the state of marriage rests or whether our marriages will rise or fall or give glory to God or not give glory to God will be based on necessarily who does what or how sort of efficient you are as a husband and wife and taking care of all the things you have to take care of each day. But rather, I want us to build from last week when we considered our roles as ambassadors for Christ in our homes and consider how do we actually really do that, especially when we think about words. How do we really speak to one another as a husband and wife? How do we really listen to one another as a husband and wife? How do we have the right posture of heart as we relate to one another as a husband and wife? Because that's what the Lord really wants more than anything. I don't think any of us are going to get to heaven, face Jesus, and him say, you know what, you just didn't do enough dishes. Your house just wasn't organized enough. Your budget wasn't balanced enough. You didn't run errands efficiently enough. You didn't divide the tasks up very fairly. No, I think he's going to be concerned with something that goes deeper, something that is much more about what rules our heart, what governs our heart, how we speak and relate to one another as husbands and wives. And so that's why we're going to look at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, this glorious passage on just the proper heart posture of every follower of Jesus Christ toward one another, and especially in marriage. That if he's going to say these things to us as just Christians, as just followers of Jesus, as we relate to one another in the church, well, then how much more do they apply to us as husbands and wives in our homes? So Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So first thing I want us to reflect upon is the fact that if as husbands and wives we are fulfilling this passage in our homes, then our homes will be richly blessed. Our marriages will be very edifying, very encouraging, very God-honoring. So that's why I think it's worth sort of unpacking it a bit this morning. Paul's beginning this section of his epistle by telling us to look back and reflect on everything that he's stated to this point. He tells us to look back on the realities of our salvation. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Paul's saying that's what happened when you were redeemed in Christ. That's what happened when you were born again. We were reconciled to the Father to be his forever. What that means is our position and our nature and our identity before God has drastically changed. And Paul's going to take the rest of Colossians to explain what difference that should make. How should that change us? Our relationship with him has been drastically changed. And so here Paul's now telling us to meditate on this new reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And he's going to say three things about us. Firstly, that we're chosen of God. We're God's chosen ones. Secondly, that we're holy. And thirdly, that we're beloved. And I think that reality of who we are now in Christ should just take our breath away. That should affect us emotionally. It should affect us relationally. It should affect how we think, how we see the world how we deal with conflict and affliction, how we relate to everyone, but especially our spouses. And the implications of that are huge, which is what I want us to think about first, is how do we wear that new identity, or what is this new identity that we're now supposed to put on? But I want us to step back for a minute, though, and just think about, of all the books you've ever read on marriage, of all the articles you've read on marriage, talks you've heard on marriage, What have been the things that you've heard really make the difference? Like when you've heard, okay, this is what's going to really make the difference, whether or not your marriage thrives or not. What tend to be the things that you read about and hear? Don't go to bed angry. There's one, so yeah, don't go to bed angry. That'll be a big one. Don't go to bed angry. which is sometimes helpful, but I think it you know, sometimes has the wrong, again, sometimes those rules sort of get at the right idea, but then they don't. Okay, so if you get into a fight at 11 p.m., you're not allowed to go to sleep till it's resolved, or if you get in a fight at 7 a.m., you actually get 14 full hours before you have to resolve it. Or is there a way in which he's just getting at, in that truth of don't let the sun go down in your anger, it's don't dwell on it. Don't let it linger. Don't let anger fester without dealing with it. Instead, yeah, we'll turn it into a rule, which at times can be helpful. What are the other things you hear? What are the other things that you've read, listened to? This is what will really make the difference. So know your spouse's love language. Yeah, if it's gifts, then just give gifts. If it's words of encouragement, yeah, that... There's an author named David Pallison who wrote a great article for the Journal of Biblical Counseling titled, Love Speaks All Languages Fluently, which was his attempt to blow up this idea that there's just five, and everybody has one or two or three. So you kind of have to inform everybody around you, hey, this is how you're supposed to love me. And then you have to figure out, how am I supposed to love everybody else? And he just writes, you know, love speaks all languages fluently. It just doesn't boil it down so easily into these big categories. Yeah, what else do you hear? This is what'll make the difference. So communication will be one. It's just, yeah, the key is communication. But a lot of times doesn't really, in talks about communication, when you read on in terms of techniques, in terms of here's listening techniques, here's speaking techniques, and rarely does it sort of get into the heart 
which is I've ever not actually ever met a couple who's in conflict that really had a communication problem. They both speak English wonderfully. They both speak articulately, they both listen well. And so is communication usually the problem? Or is heart motivation the, usually the problem? And so yeah, if you're sitting with somebody who speaks only German and their spouse speaks only Italian, that's a communication problem. What usually is happening is more of a heart problem, which is always expressed through our communication, expressed through the way we speak, expressed through the way we listen. Just go into a courtroom where there's two opposing attorneys that are the two greatest attorneys in the world, the most skilled and experienced at their jobs. Are you going to be watching good communication happen? I think the answer is yes. Both attorneys will speak very articulately. They will measure every word. They will make sure they say precisely what they mean to say. Will they listen to the opposing side? Yeah, how carefully? I mean, like hawks. They will write down every word, every tone, every idea. But what's the goal? Yeah, the goal is winning. The goal is defeating your opponent. And that's often what can happen in our marriages, where the conversation is more like a courtroom. And that's not a communication problem. That's a heart problem. And that's why we're going to talk about what we're talking about, is what you'll usually read, what you'll usually hear given to you as this is what really makes the difference in marriage, isn't actually what really makes the difference. Because you can learn all the communication skills in the world. It's just like handing a bazooka to a six-year-old if the heart isn't changing. It's like handing two machine guns to seven-year-olds on the playground. That's what communication skill is to a heart that doesn't love God or others. All those skills will just be weaponized in conversation. And that's why the where the gospel focuses, where God focuses in his word, is in a very different place than just communication skills. It starts with wearing this new identity, firstly being chosen of God. Where we have to realize that all of us were born hostile to God. We ran headlong from God as fast as we possibly could, yelling insults at him the whole way, seeking as much pleasure as we could, as much self-glory as we could. We need to realize that none of us wanted to be chosen. Like imagine if in your high school class, the most unattractive, most unbecoming, most undesirable person was given the power in your senior year to choose anyone they wanted to to go to prom with them. Nobody liked them. Nobody was attracted to them. They were unbecoming. They were unattractive in every way. And now they have the power to choose whoever they want to go to prom with them. What are you going to be begging God to see happen when that day of choice comes. Please don't choose me, right? Because they choose you and now you have to go to prom with them and dance with them, be identified with them, belong to them. That's how we felt about this idea of being chosen by Jesus. Listen to how Isaiah 53 described humanity's view of him. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. This is a reference to the coming Messiah. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So what God esteemed, we hated. What God loved, we hated. What God hated, we loved. We all came into the world living for, okay, my kingdom come, my will be done. That was our mission in life. We used God, we scorned God, we hated God, we longed to be rid of him. And just the cross of Christ is the great example, right? The, the one moment we had for humanity to get their hands on him, and we put him to death. 
That's what we think of God, left to ourselves. And yet God chose us. God chose to redeem us. God chose to reach down and pluck us out of that darkness of unbelief, pluck us out of that sin that we lived for and desired, open our eyes to who Christ was, soften our heart to the message of salvation, that we could actually believe in him and trust in him and be born again and filled with the Spirit and united to Jesus. And the moment he does, all of a sudden Jesus gets beautiful and more and more beautiful with each passing day. He chose to send his son to die in our place, to make atonement for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is love. Not while we were righteous, but while we were sinners, he sent his son into the world to die for us. And he chose us. He chose to put us in him. He chose to marry us to him. And hopefully now, and every day since, and every day after, we're just going to praise God and be thankful that he did it. But the second thing he says there is holy. God's chosen ones and holy. God declares us holy before him. That too, I think, could shock us that every single sinful thing that we've ever done, every selfish attitude we've ever carried, every lustful affection, every lustful thought of heart, past, present, future, every good we failed to do, every inclination of false worship, every glance at pornography, every coveting of people's possessions, every moment of anxiety and worry, every complaining, grumbling spirit, every burst of anger at our children or our spouse, every ounce of selfish rage, every bit of bitterness, of disobedience, all of that nailed to the cross of Christ, all of that forgiven and borne away, all that washed away by his blood, past, present, future, and then on top of that, imputing to us the very righteousness of Christ, covering us in the very righteousness of Christ, setting us apart as holy, as his people, as other than this world. His perfect love for the Father counted to us. His perfect keeping of the law counted to us. His perfect obedience ascribed to us. So that now the Father can actually look on you and say holy with a straight face and mean it that you really are declared holy before him, among God's holy ones, set-apart ones. And then thirdly, he says, beloved, chosen of God, declared holy and blameless before him in Jesus Christ, and then now beloved, not simply allowed into the kingdom, but actually desired in the kingdom beloved in the kingdom. It's not like you walk into the throne room of God and the Father looks up and sees you coming and just go, oh, and just has you go sit in a corner facing the wall. Yeah, he kind of had to let you in. Yeah, he kind of had to forgive you. He kind of had to choose you and declare you holy, but he doesn't really like it. Or is the Father's affection toward you one of love? You walk in, he smiles, he invites, he draws you near. You get to actually approach the throne of grace with confidence as a beloved child. If you've ever seen the movie Anna and the King with Jodie Foster, where she's, yeah, it's kind of a remake of the King and I story. I think it's in Thailand. She goes there as an English school teacher to teach all the king's children. And she has her son, she's a widow. Her husband, I think, had died in battle. And so her son's in the class with 40 some odd of the kids or the king's offspring out on this gazebo, first day of class. And the firstborn king of the son, the, the prince, the heir of the throne, stands up and says something insulting about her deceased husband, something insulting about her firstborn son, her only son's father. 
Well, a fight breaks out between the two of them. And they start going at it. And the whole place erupts into excitement. Well, one of the king's daughters runs out from that gazebo and runs into the palace. And the camera follows her running down these palace halls with these soldiers everywhere. And then she goes to the throne room and she opens the door. And the camera pans in as she goes in. And the scene is there's just hundreds of prostrate servants on the ground bow down before this throne that is exalted up on these steps. Because in that culture, in that time, nobody was allowed to look on the king without permission. So here's all these servants of the king bowed down on the ground. And at the front, there's this row of people on their knees. And one family is presenting his bride to the king in marriage. And then there's another group of envoys from some other country presenting some gift. And they're all there on their knees. And the camera follows this daughter as she bounces in between all these prostrate bodies comes up to this row of people and like pushes them aside as she squeezes through and then runs up the stairs to where the king is seated on his throne. And if you've seen the movie, you know what he does. He stops what he's doing. He leans in and he takes her and he draws her into his lap and she whispers in his ear. And then he stands up with her and she takes him by the hand and leads him out to go show him what she wants him to see that has happened out in the gazebo area. I remember seeing that and going, oh, that's it. What a picture. This is an idolatrous king of a false religion. And the honor that he's due, and yet how he receives a daughter. And you go, how much more God? That when the author of Hebrews says, therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, because Jesus is there interceding for you. Approach the throne of grace with confidence because this is now your father. You're chosen by him. You're holy before him. And you're beloved. That's meant to affect us. That's meant to lead us to point, the second section here, wearing a new relationship to others. Because Paul says, okay, now as those who have been chosen of God, those who are holy, those who are beloved, you should now think and feel and relate differently to everybody else. We're meant to wear a new attitude, to wear new passions, new ambitions. And this is what Paul's going to go into next. Verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, compassionate hearts, hearts of kindness, hearts of humility, of meekness, of patience. So put on a heart of compassion in the strength which his spirit supplies because of the immeasurable compassion that the fathers lavish on you. Just to think about in marriage how often the Lord will put you in positions where you have to express and feel compassion toward your mate, compassion toward their weaknesses, compassion toward their frailties, compassion to their difficult days of selfishness or sinfulness. As the Lord has shown compassion to you. In other words, all those areas where you might feel resentment or bitterness are probably areas where you should be feeling compassion and mercy. And we'll just sit around all day long waiting for our mate to get it together. Waiting for them to quit messing up so much. Waiting for them to get stronger, tackle things more efficiently, be a better them. When the Lord is actually waiting for us to learn compassion. Putting on a heart of kindness or charity, generosity. Just thinking about the never-ending loving kindness of the Father toward us that he's heaped upon us. And so now he says, be, be kind to one another. Not just in superficial external deeds, but a heart of kindness toward your mate, a heart of generosity, a heart of being willing to give and care for another person. And the temptation is we just sort of keep waiting around for them to earn it, for them to deserve it, for them to pay the wages 
to which we'll pay back with generosity and giving, when that really isn't what generosity is. It's not what kindness is. So what God is saying is, okay, remember the kindness with which I've related to you. I've made you your chosen, holy, and beloved. And now put on a heart of kindness toward others. Put on a heart of humility. Just to think of the humility of our Savior toward us. Philippians 2, verse 6. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's Jesus, who is himself God, the very Son of God, in heaven, and all he hears all day long is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just worship perpetually. And he didn't consider that glory a thing to be clung to, a thing to be demanded, but rather he's going to empty himself of that glory and take on human flesh. We're meant to see the extreme humility of the Son of God and being willing for eternity future to take on a body and then come in an appearance as a man and not just any man, but as a servant, a bond slave. He could have come as a powerful king. He could have come as a mighty general. He could have come and just ruled the world. Instead, he came as a bond servant. But not just any bond servant, but one who is willing to submit himself to death. But not just any death, death on a cross. The most humiliating death. He actually exerted energy going down. And we have to ask ourselves in marriage, okay, is that where I exert my energy? Do I exert my energy going down or climbing up? Do I exert my energy being willing to lose or win? Do I exert my energy being willing to serve or be served? Just think about the times in your home that you're tempted to think to yourself, you know, this is beneath me. I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. I shouldn't have to endure this. And so Paul's saying here, hey, remember Jesus' condescension for you. Remember how far he stooped down for our salvation so that we would be encouraged that there's never too far for us to stoop down. Especially when we realize that the lower that we get, the more appropriately we're probably standing. One way to think about humility is just being right-sized before God. Not having an overinflated view of ourselves. And so even the things that we think, you know, we humble ourselves and think, wow, look how much lower than I should be I am. Even that's the wrong way to think about it. However low we stoop, the Lord goes, yeah, that's about right. Just being right-sized before him. Put on a heart of meekness or gentleness. Again, when we just think about the gentleness of the Father toward us, the gentleness of the Savior toward us, that as a lion who came, he became a lamb to deal tenderly with other lambs. He will not cry out, Isaiah 42 says, or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Just his meekness, his gentleness. So in those moments in marriage where you're tempted to be harsh, where you're tempted to think, you know what, I just need to say it stronger, then they'll get the point. I just need to say it more sharply, then it'll get through. That's firstly a misunderstanding of how people really change, but it's also a misunderstanding of what God actually blesses to bring change. Because just when we think, okay, the harsher I say it, then they'll really get it. When the Lord goes, actually, I'm going to make sure it doesn't work. Because he's not about to sponsor that or to make that bear fruit. It's so counterintuitive to the flesh. This is why we need to believe God, trust the gospel, and actually take these words to heart. So we realize, okay, what he's actually wanting is a meek heart, a gentleness of heart, that that's actually, firstly, what honors him, and secondly, what he's more likely to actually use. 
to help others. Put on a heart of patience. You know, when we think about just the patience of God toward us, Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? His kindness, tolerance, patience. Just how much we have to ask the Lord in our homes and our marriages, Lord, give me patience. The patience that you express and show toward me, why is that needed? Well, because we change slowly. We change clumsily. Yeah, any of you who are parents, you, you kind of know, right? Just saying it once has never worked. Not in the history of the world, in any home, for any set of parents toward any set of children. Does saying it once ever bring change? Lasting. You know there's going to be repetition. You know, parenting is one exercise of repetition, day after day, year after year, and then praying that God would use that teaching to bring change, to use those words to bring change. Well, even more if it's your spouse who isn't your kid. Does there have to be patience? Just as the Lord's patient toward you, just as they're going to have to be patient toward you because you change slowly as well. And he explains more about what he means, I think, by that, those words, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, in this phrase, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. It's interesting here how Paul believes these manners and these attitudes will most often be expressed in relationships. By bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Yeah, in his book, Momentary Marriage, John Piper actually deals with these words and points out that those are probably the two primary things that you really have to do in marriage because the two primary things you're going to deal with as points of conflict in marriage is going to be what he calls strangeness and sinfulness. And so we have to bear with one another's strangeness and forgive one another's sinfulness. There's just going to be things that your spouse does, ways they think, ways they feel, ways they relate, decisions they make that won't make sense to you. It'll be strange. And he says you have to bear with one another. There's going to be other times where they're selfish. They say things that are rude or unkind. They fail to do things that are loving. They do things that are unloving. And that's where he says, okay, and you have to, you have to forgive any complaint you have. You notice that? He doesn't say a few complaints, but what? If one has a complaint against another, and he means a complaint of any kind, any wrongdoing that was done, forgive each other. Other people can be weird from our point of view, right? And the, the longer you live with your spouse, the more you're going to see some of that stuff. It might just be the way they make the bed. It just might be, right, as husbands, just how many pillows you have on the bed. That's one of the great questions I've had for so many years. Why so many pillows? You know, why so many different kinds of black shoes? You just need one set, right? One pair of black shoes. And then you just wear that until they fall off. Why, why so many kinds? In the same way that wives are going to look at their husbands and go, huh, why does he do it that way or not do it that way? How is he able to walk past all that stuff and not notice it and not think, I should pick that up. I should put that back where I got it from. Any number of things that all fits under the strangeness category. This isn't just how I would do it. This isn't how I think about it. This isn't how I feel about these things. Why is she upset? Why isn't he upset? Strangeness. And Paul says you have to bear with one another. You have to accept that as part of it and part of what God will use to teach you how to bear, to teach you how to bear with other. Married to this person who isn't you. And so we're called to bear one another's strangeness and forgive each other's sinfulness. And I find on that line, that's where so many marriages go sideways. We're just not willing to accept they're different. And that's okay. They're going to see the world in a different way. And, and I'm going to learn to appreciate that. I'm going to learn to value that. 
or at the same time just forgive. And notice the standard, as God in Christ has forgiven you. I mean, to think about that. Every sin you've ever committed or will commit, that God in Christ has forgiven you washed it away as far as the east is for the west, not going to count it against you, not going to let it control how he relates to us. And now he says, you have to do that. The way he's forgiven you, you have to forgive them. And think about just how many days we can go sometimes just nursing frustrations about differences and nursing anger about grievances and wrongdoings. And so on the left hand, he says, bear. On the right hand, he says, forgive. And a lot of that is summed up in this word, love. Really, if we had to sum up everything that we've been talking about so far, about compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, we could simply use the word love. And above all these things, put on love. And we've talked about that in previous weeks. By love, we mean joyful self-sacrifice enabled by the Spirit of God for the true good of others and the glory of God. So joyful self-sacrifice that the Spirit brings about that is for their true good and the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Sound familiar, those words? So when Paul says, put on a heart of kindness, a heart of patience, that's why he says, above all these things, put on love. Because if we truly love, we will be patient. If we truly love, we will be kind. If we truly love, we will not be jealous. We will not brag or be arrogant. We will not act unbecomingly. We will not seek our own or be provoked or take account of a wrong suffered. We won't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth. When we love, it says, we'll bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. So if there's something that marriage should have exposed by now about all of us, is that we don't love very well. And that shouldn't dismay us or confuse us or cause us to quit, but rather bring us to, to prayer, to conviction, to humility, and say, Lord, I need you to teach me how to love. I need you to help me love. I need you to grow my love. When you think about it, that's usually not what we pray for in marriage. Right? What do we pray for? Oh, Lord, please fix them. Whatever it takes. Oh, Lord, please get them to change this. Lord, please even give me the wisdom, the words to know how to change them. But even our best prayers are oriented around getting things different for us. But that prayer, Lord, teach me to love. Help me to love. Grow my love, that I would love the way you love. He loves that prayer. He delights to answer that prayer. He lavishly answers that prayer. And a lot of times he answers it by giving us more practice at it. He might not always just zap us with it so that we don't have to work at it. He'll say, okay, great, I will teach you to love. Here, try this. Which builds harmony. Notice what he says there. All these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We've talked these weeks about oneness in marriage, about unity in marriage, about how the Lord has made us one flesh before him for earthly life to be this picture of Christ in the church. And here he's talking about something that binds everything together in perfect harmony. And how many of us want there to be perfect harmony in our marriages? We do, right? And so he gives us the key above all these things put on love. That's what binds in harmony. We think, Lord, the way we can be unified is if you'll make them more like me. If you'll make them think the way I think, feel the way I feel, live the way I live, do what I want them to do, we'll be on the same page. And God says, no, actually, it's love that binds together, not agreement. It's love that binds together in harmony, not sameness. 
It's love, actually, that builds and promotes unity, not getting your way. So the natural consequence of love in relationships is harmony or unity. And so the centerpiece of godly marriage is Jesus Christ, but the foundation of harmony in marriage is love. So if we want to have unity, if we want to have harmony, and yet refuse to love, or refuse to work at love, or refuse to ask the Holy Spirit to help us love, then I think we really are living in a fantasy world. And sometimes we'll try to prolong that fantasy world as long as we can. Lord, I really, really want harmony and unity. And the Lord goes, great, be more joyfully self-sacrificing then. And we go, oh, okay, I guess unity can wait. We want one without the other. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the result of love is unity. So we have to just think about just how vital that, that's how vital it is in a church, but certainly how vital it is in a marriage. But also peace, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, verse 15. That really is a remarkably important command. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has purchased for us peace with God. The gospel is a message of peace. God offering terms of peace. If you will repent and believe this message, you'll be reconciled to me and will have peace. It's a covenant of peace. And that should affect us. That if we have peace with God, we should have peace here. If we've been reconciled to God, we shouldn't fear people. And one of the great killers of harmony in marriage is just the fear of people. The desire for human approval and praise. Insecurity and unrest in the soul. That's why it's so important. He says, let the peace of Christ rule you. Don't fear people and what they think. Don't be preoccupied with your image, your reputation, your status, how you look to the world. Don't be preoccupied with how you look to your spouse, that they'd be impressed with you, amazed at you, glory in you. Now don't fear them. Let the peace of Christ rule you so that you can be set free to love them. So Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, would say often, we have to love people more than we need people. I Meaning we have to love them more than we need their approval. Love them more than we need their esteem. Love them more than we need them to be impressed with our image or our performance. Those two things can't happen at the same time. We can't fear people and love people. Because if we fear them, then as soon as we enter the room, we're just going to be maneuvering. We're going to be managing them, not loving them. We're not going to speak what needs to be spoken. The same is true in marriage. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So we were called to that peace to that kind of harmony in one body, the church, just as much in marriage. And be thankful. This is great. It's actually going to use that word three times. Be thankful. Verse 16, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, giving thanks to God. If you really want to be encouraged in your marriage and encourage your marriage, just commit to being thankful every day all day. Just dwell on all the things you're thankful for. Notice all the ways that God has been so good to you. Good to you through your spouse, good to you through marriage, good to you through Christ, good to you in every way. Take on a heart posture of thanksgiving, of gratitude. What tends to eat at our marriages is just complaints, grumbling, frustration, everything that isn't the way we want it to be. Everything that doesn't fit in its spot where we want it. Everything that isn't right. And that's not going to cultivate thanksgiving. 
then also the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, I love how he says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which means it's not enough to just read the word of God every day, though you have to. I mean, in order for it to dwell in us richly, we've got to read it. It's not enough just to believe the word of God, though that's necessary. We must also submit ourselves to it, delight ourselves in it, trust it, honor it, obey it. Let it dwell in us in a rich way. Let it actually control how we see the world. Let the word of Christ actually control what we love and what we hate. Let the word of Christ actually determine what we live for and how we love and how we spend our time. Let it bear fruit. Which interestingly just means you just have to let it do its work. Because the word of Christ will change you, grow you, mold you into Christ. And so when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he means let his word have its way in our hearts. Let his word have its way in our lives. And so he's saying to us, hey, get out of the way. Let it have its effect on you rather than the love of the world, rather than the words of the world. And see the consequence of that in verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly will produce teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It will produce singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It will produce thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, the Lord does intend for us to deal with sin in our relationships. He does intend for us to teach and admonish one another, even in marriage. But you notice, where does it fall in the sequence of everything that he said? Okay, realize you're God's chosen one. You're chosen of God, holy and beloved. Okay, then put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Okay, learn to bear with one another and forgive one another. Okay, above all these things, put on love. Oh yeah, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Oh, and then let the word of God dwell in you richly. Now you're ready to correct somebody. Now you're ready to share an opinion about the way they live their life. Now you're in a position where you can actually teach and admonish another person. And you're going to do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you're going to do it with thanksgiving in your heart toward God. It's so important that we have the order right. But once the order is right, it's also so important to do it. Meaning we are called to speak the truth in love to one another. So there's some of us in the room that are just far too quick to speak. There's others in the room that are too afraid to speak. There's some of us here who just the moment the impulse comes, we just blurt it out. There's others will mull on it for nine to ten months and just let it stew and just pray to God that somebody else brings it up to them or just pray to God that they just somehow come to the, like in a night vision or something, that the Lord will somehow make the point, anything but for you to have to initiate the conversation. And so we have to realize that when God says these things to us through the Apostle Paul, he's guarding both, he's addressing both, both the ones who are going to speak in the flesh and the ones who will be silent in the flesh. So think about the image of a, of a surgery for a moment where you're out doing whatever you're doing and you get a phone call that your spouse has had a heart attack and they've been rushed to the hospital and they're going to have to have an emergency surgery. And like quadruple bypass, all kinds of other things, really serious long surgery. And you've actually just been out on a mud run, around about 5K, mud run, you're covered, you're filthy, but you're like, I got to get to the hospital. You rush to the hospital, you, you, you run into the operating room, waiting room area, and the surgeon, the chief surgeon's actually there waiting for you. And he looks at you and goes, oh, we're so good you're here, we can start the surgery now. 
And you look at him and go, okay, do you need me to sign something? And he says, well, well, no, actually, you're helping with the surgery. We can't start it until you're here. And at that point, what are you going to say to this surgeon? Or you go, okay, great. I've always loved to do a little surgery. What are you going to say? Yeah, I, I think you're thinking of the wrong person. I don't do surgeries. He's like, no, you don't have a choice. If we're going to do the surgery, you have to be involved. So you go, okay, and, and they bring you back to the area where just outside the operating room, and you look in, and there's your spouse unconscious on the table, a whole team, surgical staff all around, and they're all just waiting for you. He's like, all right, let's get in there. But then you look down at yourself, and what do you see? You're just covered in mud, covered in filth. And what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, I... I can't go in there like this. I need to clean up. And he's like, you're right. Here, we got a room for that. Come over here. And you go, and they scrub you up. They cleanse you. They wash you. They put on new garments, clean garments. And now you walk into that surgery room, and they walk you right up next to that table, and you look down, and there's your spouse, chest laid bare, a whole table of instruments, anesthesiologist machines, and you look at the surgeon, and he looks at you and hands you a scalpel. Now what are you going to do? You're like, what, what do you want me to do with this? Well, just cut in, get going. And would you even know where to start? I'm assuming there's no heart surgeons in the room. Would you even know what to do? Or would you not again look at the surgeon and go, listen, I'm not qualified for this kind of work. And the surgeon goes, well, you have to. You're the instrument I'm going to use. And then you say, well, where do I start? Well, just cut open the chest. And you take that scalpel and you put it out over the sternum. And what's your hand going to be doing at this point? Just shaking. At that point, are you going to say, hey, can you sh where do I show me? And at some point, you're going to ask that surgeon, can you at least like hold my hand? and guide every single move, guide every single step of the way. You wouldn't do anything without that surgeon's help. And yet think about in marriage how often we will just barge into that surgery room, grab scalpels, and start slicing and dicing as if we have a clue what to do with their soul. If you think about the fact that that's the kind of work that the Lord is doing in the life of our spouse, he's doing heart surgery. He's doing deep spiritual work. Do we really understand what to do? Do we really know what words to speak? Do we have the audacity to think that we can barge into the room and just start throwing things around and the Lord go, yeah, that's what I would have done? Or do we have to slow down and start with, Lord, you got to cover me in new garments? a new heart, a new posture. And when I get in the room, when I speak, I need you to guide every word I say. I need you to guide every move that I make. Yeah, because for some of us, the Lord says, all right, this is your time to speak, and forget the scalpel, we grab a chainsaw. Just get that thing going, and we're just ready to start cutting body parts apart. Not realizing that with all the words we're speaking, the Lord has to come behind and actually do real surgery to heal that. Now he has to come do cleanup. Now we're not an instrument in his hands, we're an instrument in Satan's hands. And somebody else has to clean that up. But for others of us, we come and we just get paralyzed and we're like, no, I'd rather not do anything. I just don't want to be involved in this. And we have to realize that's unloving as well, to not say anything, to not participate, to not ask God to use us in his work in the life of our mate. But then you can think about the image from the other side, meaning now imagine you're the spouse in surgery. What is it like when you get on the table? When your spouse comes up to you to say something, is it like, are you like a medieval knight that's covered in like chain mail? Like a chainsaw couldn't get through. Like no scalpel is going to cut anything. They're so, you're so defensive, so guarded, so insecure. 
It's like doing surgery on a brook trout, just flopping all over the table. You can't get your hands on it. That's how some of us are on the table, right? So guarded, so defensive, so rejecting of any counsel, any words, anything that might be so unreceptive. Because we're just not realizing, wait a minute, it's the Lord often that is using the people around us, using our spouse to show us things that we don't see. So it's not just our posture of being instruments in the surgery, it's our posture when we're under the knife. Are we thankful? Are we receptive? Are we good patients? Knowing that our spouse is part of the team God is using to get at stuff. And then the reason for all of this is the glory of God and whatever you do, I love that, whatever you do, in word or deed, I mean, whatever you do, every word, every deed, do everything. Do you see his point? Whatever you do, word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning for his glory, for his namesake, for his kingdom, for his purposes, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That in the surgery room, whatever you do, every cut of the scalpel, every word you speak, every deed you act in that, do it for his glory. Do it for his honor. Do it in his name. Every word you receive in marriage, when you're under the knife, receive it for his namesake. And all of it giving thanks to God along the way. Questions, comments, thoughts in response to Colossians 3. Got a few minutes here left for any questions or discussion. Dan. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a certain level of ignorance the Lord keeps us in. When we, yeah, because, you know, I've said before, just, and we're, those of you here who've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you kind of know, you, you're probably still going to weddings. You're sitting out there as that pastor gets to the point where he says, okay, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, looking at this groom and saying, do you agree? And he's just smiling away. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, he didn't get it. Wives. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Respect him as if he was Jesus. And, and she's just smiling away, going, yeah, yeah, I got it. Here we go. And there's just a way in which we can't possibly grasp the depth of what's being expressed. But praise God, he gives us time. And so some of it isn't, okay, how do we get married and by week two we're just done growing? We feel... But we have to realize, no, actually, he's bringing us into something that is a lifelong journey and road. That's why it's so sad when you see couples quit after a year or two years or four years. I'm like, you're still stretching. Like, you're still warming up. How can you be done? Like, it, just even the patience that's needed to go, you know, this is going to take a while to learn how to love well. It's going to take a while to learn how to bear patiently. It's going to take a while to learn how to forgive the way Christ forgives, to actually let the word of Christ Christ dwell in us richly. And see, yeah, there's a way in which um, he gives us a little at a time. Um, Yeah, other comments or thoughts or questions? All right, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these words that you have given us for our good, for our equipping, for our training, for our growth in godliness. We praise you that you've chosen us, that you've made us holy in Christ, that that you love us. And we pray that you would help us to put on this kind of heart of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, that you would help each and every one of us to bear with one another and to forgive one another as you, through Christ, has forgiven us. 
We pray that you would cause your peace to fill and rule our hearts. You would cause your love above all these things to fill us, that your word would dwell in us richly so that as we speak to one another and listen to one another, as we relate to one another and serve one another, we would do all these things for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.